You may be seated again. Let me invite you again to turn with me in your Bibles, this time to the New Testament. Uh, Our text this morning for preaching is found in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 15. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find uh, those verses on page 814. Uh, As you're turning there, I just want to say it's good uh, to be back uh, for us in the book of Matthew. My family and I, over our sabbatical, we, were, we went to 13 different churches uh, and were part of 13 different sermon series uh, or not sermon series. It's, it's kind of hard for a while not to be uh, in a book. Um, I know that you were recently or at, uh, last Sunday studying Esther uh, and you were blessed by that series. I, honestly, I'm sort of jealous. I think you got the better end of the deal than we did uh, over the last 13 weeks. I have heard Jim preach Uh, on Esther, and it is wonderful. Uh, And I know you were blessed and were nurtured uh, and grew by that. So I sort of feel guilty coming back and uh, taking back the morning series uh, because I know you were so well fed. Uh, We are turning this morning back to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We began this last Christmas uh, and preached up and through the end of verse, excuse me, end of chapter nine uh, on the last Sunday of June. And so now three months later, we pick the account back up. It was a good place to break. Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew records the ministry of Jesus by sort of going back and forth between describing in a narrative form what he's doing, miracles he's performing, uh, people he's confronting, uh, folks that he is healing. And, and then he contrasts that with these blocks of teaching or discourse. And so chapter 9 concluded a series on narrative that we pick up this morning in a new couple chapters of teaching or of of discourse. Uh, If you're using a red letter Bible, this will stand out uh, especially clear to you. And where we left off was Jesus telling his followers to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest. Actually, I asked you and challenged you to join me in praying that God would send out laborers. And so we have been waiting uh, for these months to see how that prayer uh, will be answered, and we have the answer before us this morning. So we begin this new section, we begin this section of teaching, looking at how Jesus commissions his apostles and sends them out. So Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 15, would you follow along with me in the reading of God's word. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. 
And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, these sobering words we end with tell us very much how our decisions, our faith, or lack thereof, our belief, or lack thereof in this life, ring the eternal consequences. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we come to learn, we come to take notes and to grow, but more important, oh God, we have come to hear from you. Speak to our very hearts and souls. Might your spirit breathe faith into our fainting hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early part of the 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt was the president. And he, living in a time of peace, wanted to send a message out to the rest of the world. And so some of you know this account. He put together a fleet of naval ships and he sent them, leaving the East Coast, throughout the world, throughout the globe. And it took over a year uh, for these ships to sail to all these different foreign ports bearing the message of the president of the United States. Now, what was his message at this time? Well, at one level, it was a message of goodwill and of peace. If you've heard of this, you've heard it called the Great White Fleet because all these naval battleships were not painted in their usual gunmetal gray that they would use for war. They were painted white, which was the symbol of peace. So here come all these white painted battleships into port bearing this message of goodwill and peace from the United States, sort of the the big kid on the block. But you can also imagine there's another Ulterior motive. If you know Teddy Roosevelt, you can imagine what that is, right? It is a show of of strength and of might and of power. It doesn't matter how white those ships were, how much they were under a banner of peace, when you see dozens and dozens of ships from the greatest navy in the world pull into your little harbor, there's another message, right? Don't mess with the peace. (laughs) Don't mess with these ships. You don't want them to come back painted gray, do you? You see, they bore a message that they officially delivered, but then they they bore a message just in how they were painted, right? The president sends out messengers to bear his message, and likewise, in our text, Jesus sends out messengers. And they have words they say, and they, they actually have how they're dressed and what they're carrying that sends out a message. Now, what is the message that Jesus The Messiah who has come, what is his message to the towns and the cities and the houses to which he is sending his apostles? The message I want you to see this morning is simply grace. The title of the sermon, Messengers of Grace. 
or to expand the sermon into a sentence, we would say Jesus sends us messengers of grace to show us what his kingdom is like. Jesus sends us messengers of grace to show us what his kingdom is like. I want to get to the grace part and the bulk of the sermon. Before we get there, I just want to show you in the first few verses how Jesus does this sending. Then we'll get to our main points about grace itself. How does Jesus send out his messengers? Well, we see there's kind of three verbs attributed to him in these first few verses. He calls, he gives, and he sends. All right, so Jesus has asked his disciples, instructed them to pray for laborers. And now he is answering that by calling these laborers to himself. He's going to go and send out to the harvest. Now, who are they? You see in the first verse, he called to him his 12 disciples. So they're learners, they're followers. They're those who are following after Jesus. And we see that there are officially here uh, 12 of them. We have seen already Jesus call some fishermen, a couple pairs of brothers early in the gospel, Jesus called. Uh, We see in chapter 9, he calls Matthew, the author, who also wants us to be sure that we know that he's the tax collector. Don't get too high ideas of Matthew. He wants you to know, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lowly tax collector. And then for the first time, we see all the names together, all 12 names stacked together, the fishermen and Matthew. And now we have this complete list, a list that amazingly, as we get to the bottom of it, includes Judas. It's quite a list. Jesus sends Judas as a missionary. So he calls these disciples to himself. And then he gives them something before they depart. He gives them authority. Look at the second part of verse 1. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease uh, and every affliction. This is unique authority. This is a special authority for a special people at a special time with a special mission. They have apostolic authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal diseases. How come Jesus can give them that authority? Well, he already has it. Right? We've seen it over and over again. This is what Jesus does. Jesus has authority over the spiritual forces of evil. And he delegates in this mission that authority to the twelve. So he calls them. He gives them authority. And then finally he sends them out. You see, as he goes on, verse 2, Matthew writes, The names of the twelve apostles are these. Now, those of you familiar with your Bibles, you've, of course, seen the word apostles before. If you were reading Matthew for the first time, this would have been the first time you would see that word. And it's the last time. It's the only time that word appears in Matthew's gospel. So it is significant in his retelling of the accounts. What it means is simply sent ones or those who are sent. So the 12 disciples who are learners and followers of Jesus are now given unique authority and he sends them out as those who are sent for a specific mission. I want to be clear about this. So when you go back and read Matthew 10 later, you don't think these words are directly addressed to you because they're not. They're addressed to 12 men for a specific time and purpose. We can learn from them. We're going to learn from them this morning. But Jesus is specifically calling these disciples. And you see he sends them out. You'll note the names are are listed in pairs. There's six pairs. He sends them out two by two. There's some wisdom or principle there of sending out gospel workers two by two into the harvest. 
But ultimately what I want you to see in these verses is that Jesus calls and gives and sends. What he's doing is he's answering the very prayers that he instructed his followers to pray. He is answering their prayer that he, the Lord of the harvest, would send out laborers. He is commissioning these specific men for this task in church history to go forth and spread the gospel because he has burdened and instructed them to pray for that very purpose. We will meet some of these disciples and apostles later in the gospel, so we're not going to spend any more time on them this morning. I want to jump into the body of the passage, the body of the sermon, and that is to see as they go, as these messengers go into foreign ports and foreign cities, what is the message that they bring and declare and demonstrate? The message is the gracious kingdom of God. And in our time, I want to show you four ways that God's kingdom is gracious. How is his kingdom a kingdom of grace? First, we're going to see in verses 5 and 6 the focus of God's grace. The focus of God's grace. Where does he send them? Where does he send these missionaries? When we think about sending out messengers of the gospel, we think about sending them to far-flung places, right? We pray for many missionaries in this church. Most of them live very far away, right? But Jesus tells these apostles to go nowhere among the Gentiles. Those are sort of the enemies of the Jews. Those who are not part of the covenant community. Those who are away from where they are. Don't go out there. He tells them not even to go to any town of the Samaritans, but particularly the focus of their mission and the focus of God's grace in these verses is Israel. It is the Jewish nation. It is the Jewish people to whom Jesus sends these messengers. This is a unique pattern in history. We're going to see this pop up in a couple more chapters uh, where a Gentile woman comes to to receive from Jesus and he sort of rebukes her because she's, it's not yet her time. His ministry is focused here on the Jewish people. We see the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans say the gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It is a unique pattern in church history. But why is it? Why would Jesus, the one who's come to bring hope to the world, the one who's come to bring a light to the nations, Why would he seemingly so limit and restrict and focus the mission of his apostles? Well, you note verse 6, I skipped over it. It's not just Israel to whom he sends these apostles. But he says, quote, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep. This is a, a common image in the Old Testament of God's people. They are lost. They are those who have gone astray. They are those who have left their covenant God, who have left the covenant people. Sometimes sheep are lost because of their own sin and they they go after the things of the world and they leave behind the faith. Other times in the Old Testament, sheep are lost because of their unfaithful leaders. The unfaithful leaders lead them astray. They leave them away lead them away from God and their people. Either way, we are looking at folks who are named and beloved by God, part of his covenant community and family who have been lost and led astray. The very same people that Jesus looked at at the end of chapter 9 and had compassion on them. 
because they were sheep without a shepherd. He looks at a nation and a people and a faith that is awaiting the arrival of the Messiah and they don't see the Messiah before their face. And instead of rebuking and rejecting them, he has compassion on them and he sends the apostles to bring them back because that's the very mission that his father sent him on to recover the lost sheep of his people. What does this tell us about God? Well, tell us that God makes promises And he intends to keep those promises. It tells us that despite the fact that the sheep have gone astray, that God has not gone astray from them. Despite the fact that they have forgotten God, God has not forgotten them. They have broken their side of the promises, but God has not and will not break his. You see, God is is focused on his people. To them come first the messengers of grace. It is reassuring to a sheep like me, <laughs> that when I go astray, God comes after me. And that when you go astray, God comes after you. He does not leave you. And he does not forsake you. That in the body of Christ, God has made promises to us. He makes promises to us in the covenant sign of baptism and throughout the rest of our lives. Wherever we are, in church or out of church, close with God or walking far from God, God honors and keeps those very promises so that when his people go astray, God is the God who seeks after the lost sheep. That truth is of particular comfort for parents who have raised children in the church who now seem to have gone astray, who now seem to have rejected the God of their childhood, who have rejected the faith of their family. And parents often wonder if God hears, if God cares, if God is going to honor his promises to us. The Bible doesn't assure us of exactly what God will do, but it tells us of the covenant-keeping nature of our God, that he will pursue you, And Christian parents, he will pursue your children all the days of their lives. And the pursuit of God knows no limit. The covenant people of God are the focus of his grace. It doesn't stay there, of course. God's grace cannot be held back. It continues to grow and flow. And so next we see, secondly, another part of the covenant promise in these verses. And that is we see the fullness of God's grace. Verses 7 and 8. The fullness of God's grace. Once the apostles reach the lost sheep of Israel, what do they do? Well, the answer is simple. It's they do what Jesus did. They didn't know this, but as they've been following Jesus around all of these chapters, he's been showing them exactly what they're going to do when it's their turn uh, to be sent out. Look what we read in verse 7. Jesus says, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Does that sound familiar? That describes the ministry of Jesus. I mean, just look over to the end of chapter 9, verse 35. It it reads, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues 
and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. We could go back to chapter 4. We could read that same summary verse describing the ministry of Jesus. So we can look at what Jesus does and we can break it down into his word and his deed. Right? He proclaims the gospel of grace and he complements that with acts of mercy, with acts of service, with miracles of healing. Right? As we watch Jesus, it is both word and deed and that same ministry is to be mimicked here by his apostles. They are to proclaim, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the word part. Now, does that phrase sound familiar? We've heard it. It's been a while, but we've heard it in the Gospel of Matthew. This is how John the Baptist began his ministry. Chapter 3, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus begins his ministry, in chapter 4, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here we have those same words. Sort of. We're missing that first word. We're missing the word repent. I'm fairly certain it's intended to be implied here. We're going to see later this message is rejected by disbelief and a failure to repent. And so I think we rightly understand the apostles mimicking the words of Jesus to repent, to preach a message of repentance because the kingdom is at hand. Now, how do they know the kingdom is at hand? Well, the king is here. That's the first big clue. But as the kingdom comes... The blessing and the life and the fullness and the richness of the new begins to push out the death and sickness and dying of the old. Jesus doesn't perform any old miracles as he goes around. He's not about sort of doing party tricks so that people think he's cool, right? His miracles replicate moving from sickness to health, right? From brokenness to repair, from death to life. So this is the ministry, the spiritual work that his word does in us. Brings us from dead and lost and sick and broken and rebels to whole, full, restored, renewed followers of Christ. And he pictures that with these miracles. And the apostles will perform miracles of healing. They will perform miracles of spiritual healing because Jesus has given them that authority They will even, it says, raise the dead to show the resurrection and the life that comes to all those who believe in the resurrected Son, Christ. What is the picture that Matthew is painting for us? The picture is a renewed and restored kingdom. The picture is the kingdom of word and deed. The picture is a kingdom of restored men and women, body and soul. It is the picture of a kingdom that is so near, it is actually breaking into the fallen world around us. And so sin and sorrow remains, but grace and mercy and life is given birth and will ultimately prevail in a sin-sick world. It's sort of that experience at night when you go out uh, and you see the stars come out at night. Maybe you remember doing this uh, with your kids. There's a little rhyme, right, about the first star uh, you see at night. And there's just that one star and it's sort of faint, right? But then as night darkens, you begin to see more and more stars, right, to dot the heavens. And the darker it gets, the more and the more stars come out and the sky 
is filled with them. As Jesus sends out his apostles, it's as if we see right before our eyes that one bright star of the word and deed of Jesus spread out and sort of sprinkled throughout the darkness of a fallen world. And it's not just empty words, right? And it's not just uh, deeds of healing that bring no substance to the soul. It is body and soul restored, ushered into the fullness and grace of God's restored kingdom. How is God's kingdom gracious? It is full of life and breath and everlasting joy with the Father. We see the focus of God's grace in verses 5 and 6. We see the fullness of God's grace, verses 7 and 8. Verse 8 and 10, we see the freedom of God's grace. We see a third way that God's kingdom is. Is gracious. This is one of the most memorable verses from this section, and it's bizarre to me because it's really nothing more than a packing list that Jesus is giving his apostles. All right, you see in verse 8, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 9, he says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journeys, or two tunics or sandals, or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. What's Jesus doing? He's just telling them what to bring as he sends them out. On their mission. He tells them it's not going to take too long, so don't bring too much stuff. He tells them it's going to be pretty intense, so you don't need to plan on staying in a town for too long. I mean, he essentially tells them, don't go shopping for more stuff for your trip, right? I mean, you've gotten those invitations in the mail for an event, and you know you're supposed to wear something nice for the event, and so there's a difference, at least in my house, there's a difference between when the men open the invitation and when the women open the invitation. Because the women usually say, well, I have to go shopping. I don't have anything to wear. And I think, you, I've seen your closet, right? You have plenty to wear to go on this outing. Jesus is telling us this is not an event, this is not a trip that you need to go out shopping for, right? He says you don't need to go buy a staff. You don't need to go bring bags of, uh, of money with you. You don't even need an extra tunic. Just take what you've got. It is time to go. The, the mission is pressing. So they don't need to acquire anything as they go. But there's some theology behind that. Behind that is the idea that God will provide for his workers. The verse says the laborer is deserving of his food. That means you don't need to bring anything because God will provide it for you. This is in this particular mission. It's not saying that missionaries shouldn't take a suitcase with them when they go to the mission field, right? This is this particular mission, and God is saying, your housing, your food, everything you need will be provided. So they must learn to depend on the providence of God. They will open doors and pantries for them as they need it. But there's a a second principle here that shows us the freedom of God's grace And that is that God will provide for them. Therefore, they don't need to charge anything for their work. They don't need to accept anything. They don't even need to bring money with them. He says to them in verse, the end of verse 8, You received without paying. Give without pay. He says, if you know the Lord, you have received a precious gift that you did not pay one jot or iota for. You did not pay one penny to receive the free grace of God. And in order to show forth 
how that grace is free and open to everyone who comes, Jesus instructs his messengers to take no money, to charge nothing for what they offer. You know, often people are held up in coming to Jesus by this sort of idea that they have to pay something. Not actually pay money. But the idea that God would save a wretched sinner like me without me doing anything doesn't make any sense. Right? I have to give something to God. I have to bring something with me to God. And, and until I, I'm ready, until I have something, well, God won't accept me. Well, God won't receive me until I'm good enough, until I've done enough. But Jesus tells us the grace of God is the freest thing you'll ever receive. It comes with no strings attached. It is offered to the worst of humanity this very day to receive Christ by faith and enter into his everlasting kingdom. The Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, Come, buy, and eat without money and without price. Do not let anything hinder you this very day from coming in faith to the free kingdom of God that is offered to you in Jesus. The apostles show this by not charging for their ministry. What about us? In what sense do we learn from charging about our ministry? I think a challenge for us from this text is this, that we are, if we have received freely the grace of God, we are to give God's grace away freely. Now, I don't think any of you has ever charged somebody else, right, for you to tell them about Jesus. But I wonder sometimes if, if we look at those who we believe are undeserving of the love of God and we turn away from them. Or if we think and the hardness of our hearts. I, sure, I have received free grace, but this person has had enough chances, right? Enough opportunities. It's time for them to, to shape up or get out or whatever it is, right? What opportunity, I wonder, do you have this week to show grace to someone who completely does not deserve it? I mean, if you're only loving and showing kindness to those who deserve it, is it really grace? Grace is the unmerited, undeserved riches of God that comes to us at the expense of the blood of Christ. And how sad it is that often those of us who are recipients of God's grace can stubbornly withhold it from others. How can you this week be a conduit of the undeserved grace of God and how you offer maybe money, Maybe food, maybe love to those who don't deserve it, maybe forgiveness to those who don't deserve it, maybe honor to those who don't deserve it. We are a people who have received freely, and so we give away freely. That brings us to the final and fourth way that God's kingdom is gracious, and that is, that is the fact that it won't always it won't always be offered for free. In fact, it won't always be offered at all. Because verse 11 to 15 tells us the finality of God's grace. 
the finality of God's grace. Ultimately, for the apostles, these verses just answer the question, where are they going to sleep in each town? Right? I mean, Jesus has said, you can't bring anything extra, no money or food. And they're wondering, well, who, where can I stay? And Jesus tells them, well, some people open your door to them. They're worthy people. And some people will close their doors to you. They're unworthy people. Stay with the worthy people and leave the unworthy people alone. So at one level, those verses just tell us where they're going to sleep. But there's a deeper problem here, isn't there? That Jesus is actually telling us some people are worthy and some people are unworthy. What does that mean? What he's not telling us is that some people are deserving of the gospel and that makes them worthy. That is not at all. That would be to revoke the very idea of grace that he has just focused on. The worthiness here describes those people who open their homes to the apostles. So they can stay there. And in so doing, as they receive the apostles, it is implied that they are receiving the message of the apostles. Because look at those who aren't worthy. In verse 14, Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, that describes those who are not worthy. What are the words? The words are repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So to be unworthy is to show oneself that by rejection of Christ, you are liable to the judgment of God. We are guilty of rejecting the message of God. And many of us, some of you here, some friends and family, continue to persist in rejecting the messenger of God. This is not something so silly as when a door-to-door salesman comes to your door and you reject them and slam the door in their face and they go scurrying off to the next door. It's not like that at all. Because we're not just rejecting messengers. To, you see, Jesus tells us to reject the messenger is to reject the message itself. And it is so serious that the apostles shake the dust off their feet as they leave. This isn't just they wipe their hands clean of them. That's not what this means. What, the history of shaking dust off feet are Jewish people leaving Gentile homes or towns where they have been ritually made unclean and to shake the dust off their feet is to rid themselves of the uncleanness, the, the ritual uncleanness that they have received in the home of a Gentile. But they're not doing this to Gentiles. They're doing this to fellow Israelites, to Jewish men and women. The shaking off the dust of their feet is a sign of judgment. And it leads us in the final verse to the ultimate judgment that Jesus warns of. He says, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What is the worst example of rampant sin that takes over a people and a town in the Bible? Sodom and Gomorrah. But covenant people who have chosen to reject the free offer from their covenant God of the incarnate Christ, for them it is so much worse. The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is more bearable than that for you and me 
if we reject the offer of Jesus. J.C. Ryle says it as clear as I can. It is a most dangerous thing to neglect the offer of the gospel. Y'all, this morning the messengers have come. (laughs) The ships are white for us this morning. They bear the banner of peace. They bear the olive branch of Jesus. They open the door of the kingdom of Jesus that we might, humbled and contrite sinners, enter by faith. But those ships will not always be painted white. The messengers tell us that to reject them is to reject the gospel. And so I urge you this morning, do not put off Christ any longer. Do not put off faith a day more. The Bible tells us that his grace is free, that his grace is full, that his grace is for you, it is for every one of us. And his invitation is to come and repent, to come and trust. His kingdom is near. It is open to you today. Come and believe. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, our hope this morning is that you seek and save the lost. Because without that promise, we are without hope. We will not come to you on our own. We will not turn to you in our own strength, but you, a faithful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, have sent your Son, the Lord of the harvest, the Savior of sinners, to call weak and sin-sick men and women to come to you in faith, and we pray this very day you would gift us the faith to call upon you, to turn from our sin, to trust in your son Jesus, to believe upon him and be saved. And Lord, as a church and community of redeemed sinners, I pray you would open all of our eyes to see the abundant grace that is ours in Jesus, that we would revel and rejoice in all you have done for us in him. And we will be marked not by our own sin and rebellion, but by the free grace of our Lord and Savior. To you, the Lord of the harvest, we praise you for bringing us in. We pray that you would bring in more unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response uh, is a hymn that will also prepare us to come to the Lord's table. It's a hymn that reflects upon what God has done for us in Jesus. It is hymn uh, 461. Uh, I made a mistake uh, in the verses this week. Uh, That hymn actually has five verses. We're going to sing the first three right now, and then we're going to put the hymnal down. After the Lord's Supper, we will close uh, in singing the final two verses. So Trinity hymnal number 461, not what my hands have done. Would you stand with me as we sing?